0: Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm not going to dwell on this too much, but you heard that story presented by Kira Hoffmeier just a moment ago about the legislative action taken by Utah Senator Mike Lee to block uh, the establishment of those two museums, uh, a, a museum s- focusing on uh, Hispanic contributions and, uh, and female women's contributions. I, his, his rationale on the surface, makes sense, right? Uh, do you want to have, you know, like race, race specific or gender specific museums? Uh, it, you know, on the surface, it seems like good reasoning that it could only serve to divide. In practice, though, I'm not sure that that ends up being the case. I, as you know, spent a number of years in Washington, D.C., and my wife and I, when we were pregnant for a little baby piper, uh, we spent a lot of time, finally, after a number of years putting it off, touring the various museums around the, around the city, those museums in the Smithsonian uh, system. And one of the last museums we visited was the African American History Museum. And let me just say that of all the museums in Washington, D.C., in terms of an objective and comprehensive and a clear and understandable, well-organized presentation of history, that the African-American History Museum uh, is in a league of its own. Absolutely fascinating information. The, The stories... Of historic African Americans and that chapter of our history, uh, the the darkest of chapters. The way that it is presented is informative. It's enlightening, and it is it's absent of politics as well. It is a very clear uh, and very welcome presentation of the, of history, and it is racially specific. And so, in practice. I have not seen what Senator Lee fears may be the case should those two museums that he blocked uh, be made in the Smithsonian system. So anyway, that's all I'll say on that uh, because, you know, it's a a nuanced and difficult and touchy subject. But I just know that in practice uh, and in reality, I am a huge admirer of the African-American History Museum in Washington, D.C. And if you travel out that way, make sure that that is on the to-do list. Make sure uh, that you visit that museum. Anyway, uh, let me transition here over back, I should say, to uh, the topic at hand, and that is the prioritization of the vaccine rollout. We've heard from the CDC. We've heard from the, uh, the COVID-19 Community Task Force here in the state of Utah. We know via the coronavirus.utah.gov website exactly how the vaccine rollout will be uh, distributed. And yet yesterday there was uh, an amendment to that, if you will. We've spent the last half hour now discussing with Heidi Matthews, the UEA president, as well as Melissa Ford, president of the Salt Lake City uh, School Board, what that means for teachers. As school staff has now been added to one of the first groups uh, or first categories to receive the vaccine, there is another group. There is another group that has a, a vocal group of supporters in, in terms of moving this group to, uh, you know, a more favorable position in the prioritization line. And that is the incarcerated population. Those who find themselves behind bars, either in prisons or jails, there is an argument to be made for why those individuals ought to be some of the first to receive a immunization from the COVID-19 virus. Uh, Before we get into some of the rationale presented, uh, let's go back uh, just two days to a presentation that was delivered by Tony Washington. He is the clinical services director for the Utah Department of Corrections and gave a COVID-19 update on the state of things in the correctional system here in the state of Utah.
1: There were 1,140 active cases of COVID-19 between the Utah, the Draper Prison and the Central Utah facility, and state inmates housed in county jails. Outbreaks are currently present in the following areas Oaker one, two, three, four, and five, UNF four and UNF three, Promontory Lone Peak, Wasatch and Dog Block D block, Ironwood, Henry, Dogwood and Aspen in central Utah and Boulder, which is fir, gale, and hickory.
0: Washington continued uh, in describing the process of how inmates get the medical attention they need when needed.
1: So basically all care is initiated by health care requests submitted by the inmates. The medical staff receive the health care requests. They're triaged by a nurse within 24 hours. And then the appointments are set up through our scheduling folks, um, to meet with either the doctors, the providers, the PAs, etc. So this occurs every single day.
0: Now specifically, Tony Washington, again clinical services director with the Utah Department of Corrections discussing COVID-19 in the prisons and jails. He discusses here how they're dealing with COVID-19 amongst the inmates.
1: Obviously, COVID being so widespread in our institution which we fought so hard to keep out, being so widespread Um, We have a lot of of incarcerated individuals in isolation areas and in quarantine areas. So what we've done to try to accommodate the need is we have our medical staff uh, do rounds two times per day and mental health staff do rounds in those areas.
0: He continues here saying that inmates are never alone.
1: So what that means is that your loved ones can not only submit a health care request for you know, to address needs that they have. But they can also communicate to one of our medical staff. They can communicate to our folks who are handing out and providing the medications. Um, They can communicate to the custody staff if necessary. So they're never in a situation where they're completely by themselves and don't have access to medical care.
0: Recently, we heard from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. That was... The group that delivered, I think it was like an eight-hour presentation, they may be back at it today, Uh, but again, the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, uh, issued guidelines specifically, specifically for correctional facilities. Now, those recommendations gave priority to prison staff. And the Federal Bureau of Prisons, not long after those recommendations were made known, uh, quickly announced that they would be first taking the recommendation and doing all they could to make sure that uh, wardens and prison guards and all those who uh, you know, operate in a professional sense within the correctional system would be on the receiving end of vaccines. But, but, in the USA Today, Austin Sarrett an opinion con- contributor to USA Today makes the argument why inmates should be vaccinated against COVID-19 before the rest of us. Let me share with you some of the rationale. It's fairly simple, and I'll invite your reaction to the Utah Community Credit Union text line 57500. The argument is this that uh, you know despite all of the safety measures that we have learned throughout the country are being taken to you know, safeguard the incarcerated against the spread of the virus, it is nearly impossible to do so in an effective way. The conditions in which the incarcerated live are kind of exactly the circumstances that could lead and foster the spread of the COVID-19 virus. There are rates of transmission at levels higher, higher in correctional facilities than really anywhere else, even, even assisted living centers. And so if that is the case, if the transmission rates are so remarkably high relatively in the correctional settings, you have to ask yourself, should we be doing what we can to limit that spread more so than what we can do now? Despite the fact that these are people, you know, the incarcerated have been convicted of uh, crimes against society. Sometimes crimes of violence, sometimes uh, heinous and horrid crimes. Is COVID-19 part of their sentence? No, I don't think it is. So I think this discussion is uh, warranted. It's a hard one, you know, uh, know, especially when the impact of COVID-19 is being felt right in our own homes. You know, It's hard to sometimes take a step back and think about what's happening you know, in some far-off corner of the state or a point of the mountain here in Utah and say, you know what, maybe I'll give up my uh, spot in line for someone who has been convicted of a crime, a felony crime, in many instances. It's a tough, it's a tough and hard decision. Luckily, many of the decisions that are being made on this front are being based uh, on the on the science, and I choose to believe in the science. What do you think? Five seven five zero zero. That's the Utah Community Credit Union text line. Ought the incarcerated be moved up in line? Should they be receiving a COVID nineteen vaccine before many of us? I don't know. Quick break. When we return, I want to give you an update on uh, how things are going for my former boss, Congressman Rob Bishop. He spoke on the floor of the House of Representatives yesterday. You heard some of those words in part. I'll share the full address with you next and give you an update on how he's doing ahead on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio.
2: I'm Dave Cawley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. In October of 1985,